Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. The Mannheim Index used car prices rising, and this was one of the big upward pressures on inflation over the last year. We thought it had subsided, and maybe it has. This could be a head fake, of course, but still worth talking about with Anna Wong. She's our chief U.S. economist from Bloomberg Economics, um, and she joins us ahead of, of course, the all-important interview with Jerome Powell this afternoon. I believe that's at 1230 this afternoon. We'll carry it on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. Anna, thanks for joining us. What do you think about this slight revival in used car prices? Is it seasonal? Um, Could it be just an anomaly in the data? Because we've had some pretty crazy anomalies thus far with the 517,000 new jobs added on Friday. Yeah, so, um, you know, we we had flagged before that the disinflation, in particularly cars category, uh, might not be a very sustainable one because if you look at the inventory to sales ratios to cars, it's still substantially below the pre-pandemic level, which means that uh, the supply, even though the supply-demand conditions are, you know, uh, getting better, it's still the, very, very tight. So I, 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 I always thought that... Um, you know, it's not going to last this sharp decline in prices. What matters more today, Anna? Is it the what Chairman Powell may or may not say or deviate from his messaging? Or is it the State of the Union speech? I'm wondering how much of geopolitics needs to be factored in here. Yeah, I think so. Notice that Jerome Powell, Powell that barely talked about China and his press conference last week. So I think he is not going to talk too much about um, geopolitics uh, or, or even Ukraine. I mean, um, you know, so I, I think he's going to focus his message on the U.S. labor market because that is the number one driving force of inflation in the U.S. right now. And he's going to, you know, perhaps try to, um, 
you know, be more focused on his message that the Fed still has a long way to go. But he said that last week. It's just that it's the conviction in his tone. It's the tone, not the substance that needs to change. But I, I doubt that the tone can be changed that much because I think the non-farm payroll report last Friday really put a, a lot more confusion in in the picture of the economy and you know, and the market is not very, does not do very well with nuance in the message. And right now, what Powell wants to convey is the nuance and uncertainty in the economy. So um, can you convey that without the market thinking is too dovish? Can you convey that without the market pricing and rate cuts? Because, you know, he at the last press conference said financial conditions are getting tighter. And I guess if you pick any point in time with which to compare today to, uh, you could make that argument. But most everyone agrees financial conditions are really loose right now for a Fed that's trying to fight, you know, four or five percent inflation. Well, you know, the Fed is looking at a different financial conditions, uh, not an index, but certain variables. Right. If you look at the credit officers uh, survey, it shows that the kind of like the landing standards have been tightening. And that is something that the Fed really cares about. If, you know, if it's harder for people to borrow, that is clearly, you know, a more hardening of financial conditions. And also the Fed is looking at the yield curve, the real rates along the yield curve. And with inflation falling so fast in the last couple of months, it means that the real yields have been staying at kind of what that level had been a couple of months ago. But are they trying to um, fight inflation through a housing crash or... I thought they were trying to affect the jobs market, and they clearly haven't done that yet. Well, the, you know, most of the economy is driven by consumption. And when consumption slows, then job growth will slow. And consumption, if you look at the lending standards, that's why I, I mentioned the lending standards, uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's getting harder for people to qualify for auto loans. It's hard for people to get harder for people to qualify for housing loans or you know credit cards loans. So, so, so I, I think that that's that's what the Fed is talking about when they they are looking about tightening financial conditions. Anna, what does that then mean when it comes to something like the debt ceiling? I, I don't quite understand how this is even factored in when you're looking at a a, t- a period of significant tightening from the Federal Reserve. And then you have things like expanded EV credits as well. At what point does fiscal policy really factor in here? Well, there's uh, two types of fiscal policy, um, the uh, the federal level and also the state and local level. And at the federal level, it's, um, it's actually working toward what the Fed wants things to, right? Uh, of course, a debt ceiling a default would be uh, catastrophic. However, at the federal level, um, you know, if they got a negotiation for um, fiscal cuts as a result of, um, you know, uh, 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 avoiding this uh, debt ceiling default, then it's actually working toward uh, the Fed's inflation case. But however, the state and, and fiscal responsibility. I mean, right. <laughs> it would be nice if we just didn't spend willy nilly with with no end in sight constantly, you know? Yes. And and, and the infrastructure bill, uh, the inflationary impact of the infrastructure bill is going to kick in this year as well. So but at the state and local level, and this is something that Powell has said several times already, that they're still flush with cash. We did a study last year and found that state and local government have about seven hundred billion in excess net savings. Um, and that's why you saw a whole bunch of states giving out that tax credit late last year. 
And that's why in some households, income growth was so robust heading into late last year, partly. And I, I think that could explain why consumption could actually be still rather solid in the first quarter, just because there was heading to, towards the end of last year. There's just a lot of fiscal spending com- coming from the state. Yeah, level. because I guess the uh, fiscal spending that we saw over the last few years had long and variable lags as well. Did you hear, yes. by the way, did you hear Danny Blanchflower? Uh, he was kind of ripping on the Bank of England, but his argument makes sense when applied to the Fed as well, that these, um, this monetary tightening doesn't hit the economy until, I think he said, 18 months to two years later. That's what he was looking at when he was on the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. So um, he's saying they should already have paused, and I, I'm sure he believes the same thing about the U.S. because his concern is that a deep recession is worse than, you know, the abating inflation picture. Yeah, so um, the 18 to 24 month monetary lag is kind of the standard good old textbook lags, right? But it's estimated based on the last one, you know, 20, 30 years of data. And I think at the Fed right now, there's a, a heated debate on how, how 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 much shorter is the lag. And it's likely because of the la- uh, the Fed's communication style now with the press conference and, you know, immediately uh, doing a channel, like using forward guidance to guide the market and changing the shape of the yield curve. That's how the, the that's why the uh, lags of monetary policy would be much shorter than, you know, back in the days when most of the lending and cre- credit conditions in, 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 the co- in, the, in the economy is influenced by, you know, actual, uh, uh, by, by long lags of credit how, when, when interest rate will finally rise. So I, th- I think the lags are much shorter today. Anna, your model had previously predicted a 100% chance of recession, which is pretty high. Um, this year. Do you still see that when you look at your model? Well, the model is showing slightly lower uh, probability of recession, but our assessment has always been that it's not 100%, it's 80%. But now I would say on the whole, it's, it's you know, if you ask me what's the probability of 24 months ahead probability uh, recession, I would still say it's very high because the Fed gets to determine whether there's a recession here. If the Fed thinks the economy is growing too fast, they will raise rates such that the economy will have to fall into a recession. All right. Anna Wong, thank you so much for joining us. Bloomberg's chief U.S. Bloomberg Economics chief U.S. economist talking to us about really what to expect from Jerome Powell this afternoon. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's get back, though, to the equity markets uh, and fixed income focus on the cross asset, um, uh, uh, the assets, I, I should say, that that we focus on most with Mike Green. He's a portfolio manager and chief strategist at Simplify Asset Management, and they have um, uh, a suite of ETFs. Mike, talk to us about Simplify first and tell us about your products. Sure. So Simplify was launched in September of 2020 to take advantage of a rule change that facilitated the introduction of derivatives within ETF structures. That creates the opportunity for us to offer products that would offer a core exposure, for example, to a 10-year bond or to an S&P 500 or U.S. large cap equities, and then modify that payout by incorporating a derivative overlay associated with it. That was very difficult to do prior to September of 2020. And since September of 2020, it's become much easier. It's allowed us to offer products that we think are unique and offer benefits to to individual investor portfolios and to the RIA community that services them. So what you've done in ETFs and what others have done over the past few years has really changed the investment landscape um, in a way that makes... I think active management more possible with ETFs than it ever has been before. How do you see the passive versus active um, argument right now? Well, so that's a really complicated question, but... Um, well, because for a long time, right, you know, after this sort of Jack Bogle revolution, and of course, that's mutual funds really and not ETFs, but everybody was looking to index and keep costs low. And I think ETFs in a way kind of sprang out of that in the late 80s, early 90s. But um, now we've seen a lot more nuanced products that aren't as straightforward as those early ETFs, like the ones from Simplify. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true, and so this is part of the growing ranks of active management ETFs. Um, the challenge that the industry really faces is, is that it has been bifurcated and effectively BlackRock, BlackRock, Vanguard, and the rest. And the real challenge exists in the form of obtaining distribution, obtaining shelf space, effectively within the retail universe when it is so dominated by the players of BlackRock and Vanguard who, through a combination of scale, a combination of lobbying, et cetera, get themselves into a position where any product that they launch can immediately go to scale, immediately become a viable product, et cetera, that's making it very difficult for everybody else in the industry to, to, to be straightforward. That's Part what, of the reason that, that's why what monopolies do, or in this... <laughs> Uh, in this case, really a duopoly in a sense, right? Well, it's, yeah, so it's actually important that you recognize that there is that characteristic that this is an oligopolistic industry, that we've seen increasing concentration to the point that, candidly, most of my work in the space are on active-passive, and if you Google my name or you Google uh, any of my work on this, there's plenty of speeches out there talking about this component. It is actually tangibly beginning to change the structure of the market, the market behavior that we're seeing, is increasingly reminiscent of the kind of low float extreme behaviors that we saw in the 1990s associated with the dot-com cycle. We largely put that not at the feet of the Fed, which is a convenient scapegoat for this, but actually the changing market structure that's caused by the concentration of assets in those two players. 
Well, can you elaborate on that? The changing market structure, what exactly is changing here? So what's happening is, is that you're creating giant pools of capital that only face the market when there is a net order flow, right? So if you're a client of Vanguard and I'm a client of Vanguard within their index mutual funds, you buy, I sell, that actually never hits the market. It's simply crossed at NAV at the um, at the end of the day, right? So that's not actually liquidity that is either demanded or required of the market. When they are gaining share, it means that every order that they're placing effectively shows up as a buy. There's very few days in history in which Vanguard has been a net seller, for example. That means they're continually providing liquidity. They're continually creating demand for securities that's contributing to the general rise in valuations that we've seen over the last 40 years. Um, the problem, of course, emerges as they become larger and larger. Those net flows, when there's an imbalance, have become so large now that that can meaningfully impact market behavior. One of the most terrifying statistics that came out of the COVID uh, pandemic was Vanguard quite proudly announcing that less than 1% of their clients had tried to transact in that environment. My reaction to that is, oh, my God, what if it had been two? Because that would be such a huge number. It's such a huge number. It's an unfathomably large number for a market that is really incapable of meeting some very basic liquidity needs already. But Mike, you've been talking about this for some time, as you said. Um, uh, is there any possibility that regulators take action? As we start to see that kind of thing come back, right? Um, the DOJ trying to break up a big company in Google for the first time since Ma Bell. Um, has, it, has anybody at the SEC um, or... Um, in any other uh, part of the regulatory environment, stated concerns about the bigness, if I can Trumpify it, of, of uh, Vanguard and BlackRock? So I think you're facing similar characteristics and similar challenges that you see in companies like Google, right? So Google would argue that they don't have particularly high market share, that they actually compete you know, with all forms of information gathering, right? Whether it's newspapers, et cetera, or all forms of advertising. Those are really disingenuous arguments, as we all kind of know. Um, you know Peter Thiel has a book called Zero to One, uh, in which he makes a very clear statement that monopolies lie in order to protect their monopoly. I'd argue the same thing is true within the Vanguard BlackRock framework, where you know ostensibly the market share of Vanguard and BlackRock combined is hovering somewhere in the 15% range. That doesn't appear to trigger the traditional dynamics of antitrust. But within segments of the industry, particularly within things like 401ks, for example, or within target date funds, which are the fastest growing uh, form of retirement vehicle, those market shares are dramatically higher. So, for example, most evidence would suggest that Vanguard's marginal market share, in other words, the percentage of each incremental retirement dollar is now approaching 60%. Those are just astonishingly large numbers in financial markets and candidly numbers that should be pursued by the FTC in the same way that they're going after Google. Well, speaking of the financial markets, let's talk about today's trade specifically. You are seeing equities off uh, by about two-tenths of 1%. The bond market, again, uh, yields only lower. Well, flat, actually, right now when you're looking at the 10-year yield. Talk to us a little bit about what the trade is today when we hear from Chairman Powell at 12, I believe. So the real question is how much he's going to push back against the pricing that was correct in large part yesterday, right? So um, there's generally been a perception that the bond market is trying to price in a Fed pivot in 2023, that the Fed will be forced to cut interest rates. 
I think there's some problems with the math behind that, but the general observation was that the Fed would be done. Um, that's obviously contra to the message that the Federal Reserve is trying to send. They want to indicate that they want the economy to slow more than it has. It's been complicated, and that's a, obviously a bad choice of words. But it's been complicated by things like falling oil prices or gasoline prices, which have put additional dollars into the pockets of the American consumer, allowed the economy to reaccelerate a little bit in the second half of last year. You know, we're now hearing a lot of language that says things like easing financial conditions. I just think it's important right. for listeners to understand that easing financial yep. conditions just means markets are going up. Mark, uh, Mike, thanks so much. Love to have you back on. Mike Green there from Simplify Asset Management. So it's a real vibe shift. All right. A vibe shift. I think if you added yeah. up the ages of all three of you, it still wouldn't equal me. But it's a pleasure talking to Are you, you nonetheless. Are you 100, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, just so the listeners know, we don't get to 100 adding up the ages of all three of you. No, we get pretty close. Uh, Jess Menton, Katie Greifeld, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Kriti Gupta, you're going to stick with me. I want to get to Allison Williams right now from Bloomberg Intelligence because we had, if you work at Credit Suisse and you, I mean, like anyone in the whole world are planning, uh, you know, all of your spending on your bonus season. You got the meeting today. Last night, you get a message. Oops, meeting canceled. That's got to make you feel like, you know, like you work at Deutsche Bank. Allison, <laughs> are they going to lose every single person who can find a job anywhere else in banking? Well, my guess is that the delay might only be a matter of days. Uh, you may have also seen the headline that Apollo is in talks um, to take a stake in the spinoff. Um, so there is a question, you know, does sort of the delay in paying out the bankers have something to do uh, with what might be in the works in terms of the structure, the future structure of the first Boston spinoff now? Um, we we have seen from the other global investment banks that it is a competitive war for talent, even you know when things for the bank are going well. Um, so we expect that plays out at Credit Suisse, and we expect that if this is a venture that's that's going forward, that's that's going to be top of mind. But you know, perhaps there could be something in terms of the future incentives or the structuring of those payments um, related to uh, someone who is going to take a sizable stake is, 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 I guess, my, my best guess. Well, Allison, this is something that we've kind of seen happen across Wall Street as well. And I want to say across some of the European banks, what is the timeline where we get back to some sort of normal when it comes to kind of the big bank bonuses that we're used to? So define normal. <laughs> well, uh, where we're not worried about salary cuts and a loss of talent. I think that, um, you know, if we're talking about credit specifically, I think it's, you know, when a bank is going through a tougher time, they're obviously going to have to um, be creative and, you know, a lot, a bank always wants to align the incentives um, with long-term success, but that might be, um, you know, perhaps even more important um, at Credit Suisse. Uh, in terms of the fact that, you know, when revenue is down significantly, shareholders and other stakeholders, such as regulators, are going to expect that the expenses reflect that. Um, but when there is such a significant 
decline due to, you know, perhaps top of the house and not individual performance, the bank has to find a way to reward those individuals. Um, and I think, in fact, that that is one of the reasons why they are perhaps looking to do this spin out because uh, some of the top bankers may be frustrated with, um, you know, paying for some of the, uh, let's call them missteps, bad risk management, um, what have you, but some of the bigger costs incurred in other areas of the firm, such as the trading desk. Well, but I mean, my, my initial question still stands, Allison. Has anyone who has a decent resume and good credentials, um, you know, and any mobility at all, remained at the bank? Or have they already lost all of the best talent? Because starting with Greensill and Archegos and through COVID missteps and management reshuffles and, you know, all of these different controversies that they've had in Zurich, hasn't everyone already looked somewhere else and tried to get a job? I mean, it's like musical chairs. The music has stopped and there's no more chair, right? Well, you could have said the same thing, I suppose, about Deutsche Bank a, a few years ago. Did. Right? definitely I mean, I, did I think, say that. I think in general, um, you know, obviously the rec the recruiting benefit, if you will, um, you know, goes to those outside of the firm. But, um, you know, to, to the extent that the bank can, you know, key in on sort of what their key talent and, um seek to at least reward those that they believe will stay with the firm for the long term. Um, people like all different kinds of challenges in their uh, positions. And I think there's also the question of, um, you know, compensation to reflect that just both the, both the current challenges and the future opportunities to the extent that, this, um, you know, bankers are looking ahead and looking forward to this potential entity. You know, could you join an entity that gives you a award like something like a Molus or lots of these other little spinouts um, that we've had over the years? Could you go to work for an entity where you could be um, rewarded, tied more directly to your deals, but have the backing of a big bank? I think that that's that's something that one could argue is a unique uh, value proposition for some of these bankers. Allison, there's a story from the Wall Street Journal that Apollo is in talks for Credit Suisse First Boston, which we have just been discussing. Um, as you mentioned, I got to admit, I did just zone out for a second to deal with something else. But uh, Allison, I want to ask what kind of precedent that sends for a lot of these larger asset management PE companies to kind of acquire some of these spun off assets. I think, you know, we're going to have to see exactly, you know, what type of the investment is and what type of role they're going um, to play. Um, you know, in terms of the the prior SPG structured uh, product group spin out where they were spinning out um, some of the assets and operations, I think that's that's a little bit different than what we're looking at here. And so there's there's a few questions in terms of, is this unit going to absorb part of the you know private investment unit that is part of currently part of asset management, and will Apollo um, be somehow involved in that? Seems uh, you know not totally likely unless um, Apollo is going to come in and sort of take over those operations. But certainly they have their their own business, their own um, fundraising efforts. Uh, they don't necessarily need. Uh, 
uh, Credit Suisse from that respect. Um, so I think I think it's gonna it'll just be interesting to see what exactly uh, the role Apollo is going to play uh, in terms of will they be sourcing any business from this venture or is it just uh, a, a private investment? All right, Allison, thanks very much. Allison Williams there, Bloomberg Intelligence Head of Bank Research. He's on top of our uh, bank research globally, as well as BI. You can type BI.com to get all the relevant uh, uh, launch pads from your Bloomberg terminal. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of our markets talk has been derailed over the last few days by a balloon. Um, if you don't live in a cave, then you will have noticed last week when we started to see um, what is alleged to be a surveillance balloon floating over Montana. Uh, eventually, it got to the uh, coast of South Carolina, where an F-22 Raptor shot it down. The Chinese have said it's a weather balloon from a private company went astray. The U.S. says it's a spy balloon that was trying to look at our stuff, especially the nuclear silos that are all housed around uh, there in Montana. Let's bring in Mick Mulroy right now. He's the co-founder of the Lobo Institute. He's a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, but he's also the former deputy assistant secretary for defense for the Middle East and a former paramilitary operations officer at the CIA. Mick, this is, I think, uh, such an interesting story because it's so weird like, who sends up a spy balloon when they already have satellites staring at the exact same stuff? And why should we care? I mean, the Department of Defense um, itself said it's not a threat to our physical infrastructure and they're not getting any super top secret intelligence that they wouldn't already have gotten. So what's the deal? So that's something that is, in my mind, to be determined. Uh, yes, they have satellites all over the world, over 500 actually, and probably most of them focused on the United States. But there's a reason why the Chinese were doing this, and it probably is that this can collect uh, and stay in areas longer than satellites can. So I think we really need to exploit the debris that we're getting out of the ocean right now and find out if that's in fact true, and we really need to figure out how we can detect these things earlier so that we can interdict them before they're hovering over you know, our ICBM silos in Montana. But wasn't there reporting, I believe, that this has been 
in play for years now and internationally as well. I believe there's been balloons detected in Latin America, I think over Bolivia as well. Why is this moment so crucial when it comes to tackling the balloon? They're everywhere, allegedly. <laughs> right. Well, sometimes they might have to go. They're going to travel from one place to another. So they might cross over places that aren't significant to get to places that are. And I think from our perspective, uh, you know, this has, to your point, it's happened over multiple years and multiple administrations. And now it looks like we didn't even know that they happened before. It's probably that we're going back and looking for a signature that we weren't aware of and actually finding them. These balloons might have fit the perfect gap. Instead, the military is calling it, you know, our domain, domain awareness gap. So it was something that we had a hard time detecting. Hopefully now that we track this thing across the entirety of the United States almost, we have now figured out the signature so we can re-compute, uh, if you will, our radars and our early detection systems so that they will pick these up quicker and we'll be able to say next time interdict it off the coast of Alaska instead of watching it go all the way across the United States and downing it off the coast of South Carolina. So I don't want to put you on the spot here, Mick, but we have um, talked to, for example, a professor at Johns Hopkins who said, well, he was talking about the technology that we use in our spy balloons. So do we have them too? So to, to my knowledge, and you know, I, I'm just talking about what I know uh, on the open source, not something I knew from my past, we do have all sorts of uh, collection uh, platforms to include balloons. So there has to be something that these balloons do, and they're steerable, as we talked about, or as the Pentagon has said, this is a steerable. They can put it right over a location that's obviously closer than a satellite, and do things like collect not only imagery, but signals intelligence. So everything that emanates from it. So I'm sure that if we're doing it, there's some value added that's in addition to spy satellites and obviously human collection on the ground. So that both both countries, China and the United States, collect intelligence on but, each other. So, that's so nothing new. The reason I ask is that so many um, senators and congressmen went uh, went went on um, air saying that they were outraged about this. But aren't we doing the exact same thing? So that's that's my point. I mean, countries uh, collect intelligence on their adversaries, and we try to protect our own secrets from our adversaries collecting on it. So I think we need to do a much better job. I don't know that we need to be outraged, uh, but we certainly do need to protect ourselves in the future uh, from this ever happening again. There's an additional factor on this one. It almost looks like it was to, made to embarrass the United States since it was so visible. It just loggered over population areas. Perhaps we could be, uh, I'm not much into being outraged, but <laughs> certainly that was intended to make us at least angry, it looks like. Uh, and, and, and it obviously caused Secretary Blinken to postpone his trip to Beijing. So they got what they asked for. So what does this mean in terms of uh, the tools that we use uh, for surveillance here? Does this then amp up uh, surveillance from both sides or kind of wind it down? Well, and are we amping up their surveillance, right? Yeah. Are they, are the, what we want to know is, are, are they using our gear to spy on us? So unfortunately, a lot, I mean, as we know, uh, a lot of the advanced technological uh, equipment around the world comes to the United States. So they use that. And I don't know if there's a way to prevent them from doing that but it's certainly something we should look into. And as far as the question, is, is are we going to amp up surveillance? Absolutely. They're going to take everything they learned for this. They're going to try to never let it happen again. Something we should be concerned about is uh, our pilots that are flying near China, not in their airspace, but near China, uh, are likely going to start getting harassed by the Chinese Air Force. It happened in the past. 
It probably will happen again. We need to maintain our course. We have all the right in the world to be international airspace, and we need to make sure that those those aircraft are protected but by this, fighter aircraft from us. This is in the context of military drills already taking place on both sides when it comes to the South China Sea. How much worse can things get before we kind of get to the ultimate outcome, which is kind of direct combat? So if, first, I think we should do everything we can to avoid that. Uh, I think the United States will be successful. I'm obviously biased, but it's not going to be in either, either country or the world's interest to see a conflict between two superpowers. We already have conflicts going on around the world. That would just be devastating. So we need to do everything we can to get back on the diplomatic side and away from any kind of conflict. But I do think this is going to heat up the tension when it comes to these kind of gray area, uh, these, these kind of uh, intelligence collection wars, if you will. And they will try to start making sure that we can't do what they just did to us. And so that's going to be something that's continuous. But we do need to make sure that ultimately diplomacy wins the day. By the way, I saw a memo. Um, I think NBC News had reported that an Air Force General, Mike Minahan, who is the head of Air Mobility Command, sent out a, a memo to his troops saying, I hope I'm wrong, but my gut tells me we'll fight in 2025, that we're actually going to go to war with China. And then he says, you know, be ready, don't be distracted, um, you know, make sure you're doing all your training and implementing every every plan you can. Is this just, you think, um, a, a memo to keep people on their toes? Or do you think he actually does expect this Air Force General a war with China in 2025? So I think it's probably, and I don't know, but I think it's probably more likely to make sure that his his uh, troops, if you will, are taking it serious and they will be ready for a conflict in 2025, whether it happens, if it does happen. Uh, that's what the U.S. military should be doing. They should they should act as if we're going to have a conflict. Uh, they should want a conflict. They obviously don't make the policy decisions to have a conflict, but they have to be prepared. And I think, I don't know, but I think that's what he was, he was ultimately doing. The Pentagon has came out and said that's not the position of the Pentagon. It's just this uh, one particular general. But it is something that the military should, our military should always be ready to do. That's their job. So uh, let's let's all hope that he is wrong, including him. Uh, but uh, that is something that the U.S. military should be prepared to do. That's what we expect. Let me finally ask you for a status update on Russia's war in Ukraine. How does that look to you right now? Um, because we hear that, you know, the, the Ukrainians have made some advances, then they lost some ground, but we've shipped over some tanks, or they're in the process of learning how to use those. What, what's, what's it look like to you? So in the big picture, it looks like there's going to be a substantial new offensive by the Russians. They have uh, called up, uh, conscribed many more people into their uh, military, and that is something that the Ukrainians are bracing for up to 200,000 additional Russian soldiers coming into this fight. And now they're going to be equipped. I don't know why they waited till now with some of their most modern weaponry that they have, including T-90 tanks. So these tanks that you referenced are going to be incredibly important. The Ukrainians can't beat them in numbers, so they're going to have to beat them on skills. They're going to have to beat them on smarts. And that's what they've been doing so far. But these new tanks, the Challengers coming from the U.K., the, the Leopards coming from... Uh, Germany, and then, of course, our M1 Abrams, they need to get there as fast as possible. They will be absolutely key to defending uh, Ukrainian territory and also taking back territory that the Russians currently occupy. All right, Mick. Great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting some time with you. Mick Mulroy there is the co-founder of the Lobo Institute. 
We're going to talk a little corporate finance right now from the perspective of a fintech that's trying to make the world a better place. AJ Amati joins us. He's head of corporate financing there uh, uh, over at Atomic Financial. So Atomic Financial um, is an infrastructure for connecting apps and services to payroll accounts. And AJ, it's great to have you on the program. You're talking about the delta between what companies can earn on deposits if they have their money at, say, Chase or Wells Fargo, um, as opposed to what they can earn on a one-year treasury. And it's massive right now. You get nothing if you put your money in a bank, and a one-year treasury is paying more than 4.5%. That's right. Thanks for having me on the program, Matt. Um, And I think that's the the issue that we're trying to solve. The Fed um, continues to hike rates. So as that the yield curve continues to move up, and so that provides an opportunity. Banks continue to pay low interest rates uh, for depositors, and that provides an opportunity for fintechs such as Atomic and others to provide uh, accessibility to higher yielding products. So is this something you're doing only for corporate clients? And uh, how much of that difference can you make up? I mean, if you're if I'm a small business and I have I don't know half a million dollars sitting with Bank America um, earning nothing, can you? Can you give me closer to treasury rates on that and let me maintain the kind of liquidity I'd need as a small business? That's exactly right. So uh, if you're a um, a small SME or if you're a corporate or even an individual um, depositor, you're likely to earn just a few basis points on your checking account, maybe slightly more on your savings account. What we do is offer a suite of uh, products and, and we don't offer these direct to consumers, but what we do is uh, we provide a white-label investing services, and we connect with banks, fintechs, and uh, credit unions so that they can connect with us and then provide these services to their end customers. Um, the yields that we are able to provide um, are very close and sometimes in excess of UST bills. So right now, you know, anywhere on the curve that you look at up to one year, it's, it's roughly 45 to 5% now and continues to move up. And so we are able to build structures either through uh, money market funds, through T-bill ladders or other such instruments and reach uh, 4.5% and 5% yields. But this is really a function of the Federal Reserve. It's a relatively new phenomenon um, in the last couple of months or so. At a time when we're talking about when the Fed will go back to quote-unquote normal, how long is this dynamic going to last? It's a good question. I think... Um, there's, there's a few ways of looking at it. I think, first of all, uh, the current economic context, most analysts would say, is a tough and challenging economic climate. Uh, but what we're doing by offering such corporate investing products is um, what we hear from clients is that it's very attractive, um, and it shows that these kind of offerings can continue to grow even in a down cycle. Now, when the Fed begins to normalize, um, and it's increasingly look like, looking like that's going to be pushed out further, further given the very high jobs number that came out last week. But, you know, eventually when they begin to normalize, I think there's a few things to consider. I think one is that it's very unlikely that they'll go back to a zero interest rate environment, as has been the case over the past decade. And so even at a Fed funds rate of 2 to 3 percent, I think this kind of product would continue to be attractive. And I think second is, uh, it's a counter-cyclical product. So uh, Atomic also provides offerings in the equity space. Uh, we're looking at providing offerings in alternative assets. And so uh, as clients shift 
from perhaps this product to an equity product a few uh, years down the line, uh, we will be there and we have the offerings to switch between these types of products. Um, one of the benefits of putting your money in a bank is it's FDIC insured. You know, businesses often have a lot more than the maximum limit of 250000 but consumers maybe don't. Um, so is this product just as safe? Is it safer even? Do you manage to structure it so that it's just as safe as the treasuries that you're investing in? That's right. So depending on the exact product which a client would invest in, um, it comes with with different types of structure. So for example, we have a, a sweep product that is FDI insured, uh, even more than the typical FDI insurance amount. We have we provide access to T-bill ladder structures, and of course, um, those are fully guaranteed and considered safe by the market. Um, we also offer other products that enhance yield but provide less protection. And so we work with our clients to understand their risk tolerance, to understand their liquidity needs, and based on that can structure a product that would, um, I think, um, provide the safety if they require it or additional yield if that's what they're looking for. So where, if a, you know, consumers listening to this right now and thinking, I would love to have instantly accessible money in, a, in an account that earns 4.5%, where can they get that? You say you don't go to direct consumer. You're a white label um, uh, service that allows, I guess, other banks and fintechs to do that. What, what, are, what are some of your big clients then? Um, I think it's, I think rather than name the specific clients, what I could say is, uh, you can the clients could uh, or individuals can contact Atomic, and we could put you in touch with some of our partner banks, fintechs, um, and and credit unions that we partner with. Um, alternatively, uh, they can request this from from their uh, institution that they usually partner with, and then uh, their institution can reach out to us so that we can form a partnership with them. Sounds like a pretty interesting product. I kind of want to use it myself. Yeah, it you know? is. I mean, it, 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 my financial <laughs> advisor is always telling us you've got to have rainy day cash enough that you could cover your bills for six months in the event you get fired or whatever, you know, and um, I'd rather have that sitting. I'd rather have that earning four and a half percent and easily be able to pull it out. And I guess this is the idea, right, AJ? That's exactly right. Um, both for individuals, you need a rainy day fund. You want access to it, but for example, we could structure that in a T-bill ladder so that you get liquidity on a monthly basis. Um, and if you needed the entire amount, um, uh, we could also provide that to you as well. Um, there might be a small principal hit, but it's largely available. So the liquidity characteristics of this product is excellent. And again, if you are parked at a bank where you're only earning 10 to 20 basis points, um, this is a very attractive offering. And that's, I think, why our partners sound really excited. You know, we're talking to clients both in the U.S. and even abroad, um, and we haven't touched on the international arena, but we have clients and partner institutions abroad who are gaining access to U.S. Uh, both equity and fixed income markets for the first time, and that's very exciting for them. All right. AJ, thanks so much for joining us. AJ Amadi there. He is the head of corporate financing at Atomic Financial. He's also a senior fellow at Harvard. You may have heard of it. Yeah, talking sounds familiar. To, talking to us about um, a, a product that I think a lot of people are going to find interesting since bank uh, savings accounts rates have gotten so far away from the Fed funds rate. Um, and the question is, will they really ever get back there again? 
uh, who knows, as Katie Greifeld says, you have to work at Hindsight Capital to have that kind of intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.